Support for this podcast comes from Wines Till Sold Out and listeners like you. If you're looking for wine, you'll love WTSO.com. Wines Till Sold Out. Find highly rated wines for up to 70% off retail prices with new selections available every day, plus free shipping. Visit WTSO.com today and use code 100 points. That's number 100 points, all one word, for $20 off your first order of $100 or more. Promotion sponsored by Wine Marketing Group. Some exclusions apply. Void where prohibited. When I first heard about Robert Parker Jr. being one of the most powerful and influential wine critics in the world, I immediately thought of someone growing up in France, maybe even to a wealthy family. I imagine him to have started drinking wine from an early age, or at least a sip or two, maybe even in high school. That's common in Europe. I had thoughts in my mind of someone growing up around their parents' large home cellar, among hundreds of bottles of rare French wine, perhaps in a big mansion. But when I read an article in the Atlantic magazine written in the year 2000, it dawned on me I couldn't have been more wrong, and I had to find out more. Follow along with me and producer Lori Forrester as we uncover the history of Parker, wine scores, and how he changed the business of wine. Here's producer Lori. The year is 2011, and Robert Parker is in Hong Kong for a special tasting of 20 wines just bottled from the 2009 Bordeaux Vintage. Over a thousand people were in attendance to follow the tasting led by Parker, dubbed Robert Parker Magical 20, and to represent many of the best wines from a stunning vintage. Over 20,000 wine glasses were polished up and set on white tablecloths for the event, and when all was said and done, over 1,400 bottles were opened. But we're getting a little ahead of things. Let's go back to the beginning. It all starts back in the 1950s, in a household very typical of the day. Robert Parker grew up on a dairy farm just outside Baltimore. Food was important, but his mom prepared unsophisticated meals in the form of meatloaf and fried chicken, not to mention banana cream and lemon meringue pies for dessert. Wine was never served in the household. Instead, his family had milk, soda, or coffee, and for his parents, maybe the occasional cocktail. An early memory involved Bob smelling his dad's bourbon, inhaling its rich scent. His father had an uncanny sense for smell, which Bob inherited, but only realized years later. Parker had an intensity and a competitive spirit early on. One example was being a soccer starter in high school, twice making the all-star team as goalie. His mother emphasized two principles to him. Be true to yourself and be honest with others. Parker met his wife, Patricia Etzel, when they were both 12 years old went through high school together, and then married in 1969. It was Pat who showed an interest in learning French, and she motivated him to travel to Europe for the very first time. After trying wine, Bob realized it was unlike anything he ever tasted. It wasn't like beer, which makes you feel bloated. It didn't knock you out like hard liquor. It promoted conversation. It made you feel good. He had an epiphany. He knew he had to learn more about wine. In 1973, Parker began his law career at Farm Credit Bank in Baltimore. But he found wine way more interesting than the law. It was during this time 
he started reading the wine column in the Washington Post, written by the paper's food editor, William Rice. The landscape of food and wine was rapidly changing in America. Bob was just one of many baby boomers experiencing what France had to offer. It started in the late 60s and early 70s with Julia Child, who came from a very different background than Parker, growing up in a wealthy family in Pasadena, California. During that time, wine was mostly a wealthy person's drink, but that was changing with American jug wines like Gallo Hardy Burgundy, which made about one-third of all the wine sold in America by 1972. By this time, there were many wine writers out there, but most had a conflict of interest, attending wine dinners, lavish parties given by producers and retailers alike. It was around this time that the Judgment of Paris tasting was held. Six Cabernet Sauvignons and six Chardonnays were tasted and it featured California's best against top French wineries. And the United States came out on top. A couple of tasters even confused several of the wines in the blind tasting, thinking they were drinking a wine from France, but indeed it was California. It even made the nightly news on CBS television. Time magazine said, the unthinkable happened. California defeated all Gaul. Almost overnight, the game had changed. Before Parker, the concept of wine scoring began in the 1980s, when Michael Broadbent introduced the star system in his book, The Great Vintage Wine Book. And UC Davis had their own 20-point rating scale. The 100-point rating scale was created by Parker and his friend Victor Morganroth, who he knew from a tasting group of friends. They were both fans of blind tastings, opening the cork and concealing the bottle in a brown paper bag. They experimented with a grading scale A to F and the UC Davis scale, but they weren't fans of either. In the end, they settled on a 100-point scale, where everyone got 50 points just for showing up. Then they carefully refined the scale to allow 5 points for color, 15 for aroma and bouquet, 20 for flavor and finish, and 10 for overall quality level. They both liked the simplicity of it. Plus, if you went to school in the United States, you knew the difference between a 97 and an 87. In 1976, it occurred to Parker and Morgan Roth they should launch a wine newsletter for consumers. Part of the motivation was so they could earn income to keep on tasting. It turned out Morgan Roth's job at the FDA would not allow him to pursue this outside interest. Parker was on his own. He borrowed $2,000 from his mother and got mailing lists from some local wine retailers. The Wine Advocate was born. He called it the Baltimore Washington Wine Advocate, and it billed itself as a consumer's bi-monthly guide to fine wines. On page two, he laid out his point system. A wine below 64 was to be avoided. 60 to 64 had noticeable flaws. 65 to 74 stood for average, 75 to 79 above average, 80 to 89 very good, 90 to 95 outstanding, and 96 to 100 was reserved for extraordinary wines. There were of course others, the UC Davis 20-point scale, and Decanter Magazine, a British consumer wing magazine, used a 20-point scale too, but only for major tastings. It's no secret, even from early on, that Robert Parker enjoyed higher alcohol, big, bold wines. He even talked about his detractors as being the pleasure police. 
but it's worth noting he viewed the term parkerized in a negative fashion to describe a wine that was oaky, alcoholic, and bombastic, and he vehemently disagreed it. Instead, he believes the more accurate definition of the parkerized wine would be one produced from previously underachieving vineyards whose winemakers got serious about creating quality wine. And in an article from the 2015 Drinks Business, Parker said it was irresponsible not to award a perfect score if the critic does indeed think the wine is perfect. When in your mind, the wine is the best example you have ever tasted of this particular wine, you have an obligation to give a perfect score. It is that little extra dimension of emotion that comes with 100 points. And that's the difference between 97, 98, 99, or 100 points, Parker said. He went on to say he had become more comfortable with himself giving out a perfect score. In 1980, he conceded that two of the greatest wines he ever tasted were California cabs. The 1975 Joseph Phelps Isley Vineyard and the 1975 Camus Special Selection. Both Joseph Phelps and Camus would go on to be household names, representing some of the biggest, boldest cabs in Napa, even to this day. In 2011, Robert Parker was in Hong Kong for the Wine Future event where he tasted through 20 of his favorite 2009 Bordeaux wines for over two hours. Here he is talking about what makes a wine great. When I look at what constitutes a great wine, there are a handful of elements that, ha that have to be satisfied for that wine to be great or profound. One of them is that a wine has to, has to satisfy both your hedonistic and your intellectual senses. Wine is a beverage of pleasure. Let's not forget that. Beaujolais is pleasurable. Muscadet is pleasurable. Uh, but to, raise, to, to, to come up to the next level of, of being intellectually challenging and pleasing at the same time is, is not easy. And to me, every great wine that I've ever had, it has the ability to satisfy my senses of pleasure as well as my intellectual senses. And intellectual meaning that the wine has nuances. It has, it's like an artichoke that you're peeling or an onion you're peeling. That every time you go back to the glass, more things come out and it unfolds, it unravels and shows you more things. And what it shows you are all positive, things that you want to see it for. And he also talks about the nuance of a heavy and powerful wine where you might enjoy one glass, but not more. All great wines have to offer a depth and an intensity of aroma and flavor without heaviness. The last two words are the key, without heaviness. It's easy today, especially in the new world, to make wines that are powerful and very rich and very alcoholic, but they're also heavy. They're very impressive, one glass, but do you want to drink a half bottle or a full bottle? He talks about how great wines have a personality all their own. A wine has to have a singular personality. Think about it. When you've seen, when you've looked at great Chinese art or great French art or great Italian art, or you've listened to great music, whether it's, whether it's Mozart, whether it's Brahms, whether, whether, whether it, any master, what, what makes it so great is its singular characteristics, its singular personality. 
great wines have a personality that once you recognize, you won't forget. No matter who I talked to, everyone described Parker as a great guy. I caught up with Amanda McCrossin, a psalm based in the Napa Valley where she runs a website called Psalm Vivant. She told me a story about when Parker came into Press Restaurant in St. Helena, where she was working at the time. So when I first started working at Press, about six months into it, a guy named Robert Parker walked through the door. And Robert Parker, if that name sounds familiar, is familiar because his name is the one associated with those numbers that are associated with scores. So he was really the one that put the point system in place. So Robert Parker walks through the door at Press, super nice guy, you know, friendly with everybody, um, comes in with some bottles, and I know that he's going to be sitting in the back room. And so before he goes in there, he comes over, he says, hello, he introduces himself to me. I don't know why to this day, um, maybe because he knew Kelly or <laughs> Scott or something and just saw that I had a wine key in my hand. And he was like, she looks like a psalm, we'll, we'll be friends. So um, he comes over and he says, uh, guess what I have? And he's like a kid, like he, like this guy has been has been experiencing wine for decades. I mean, literally could not there. I don't think there is a more important person on this planet when it comes to wine. Um, so he comes in and he's like really excited. And I don't know, I think I can't imagine being at his age and having the experiences that he's had being excited about anything wine related to the, to this level. So he's like over the moon and he comes over and he's like, look what I have. And he pulls up this bottle and I recognize the label, but I don't recognize the contents of the bottle and the label was Screamy Eagle. And I was like, it's Screamy Eagle, but it's not the right color and it's a white. And I had no idea, I don't know if you do either, that Screamy Eagle actually produces a white wine. Um, it's super rare. They really don't sell it. It's kind of like a in the know sort of unicorn wine. He was like, I've never had it. Are you have you ever had it? And I was like, no, Robert Parker, I have not ever had white Screamy Eagle, but it sounds really awesome. And he goes, uh, yeah, we're going to crack it. Let's, um, why don't you come back and we'll, we'll try it together. So, you know, I'm like, okay. So, you know, we go in the, in the back room he, and, I, and I open the wine and he goes, grab a glass. Let's taste it. He was like, how exciting is this? And there I am in the back of press drinking white Screamy Eagle for the first time ever with Robert Parker. And I don't know that I'll ever have a better story than that because who gets to drink the rarest of the rare wines with the guy that essentially made wine famous in the United States and has also never had the rarest of these rare wines. I talked to David Ramey, who founded Ramey Wine Cellars in 1996 after stints at Matanzas Creek, Chalk Hill, Dominus, and others. Wine Spectator once called him the Professor of Chardonnay, and he has built up quite a following of loyal customers and fans. First, we talked a little bit about wine scores. There was a lot of really bad wine being made in California. I mean, we've come just an enormous uh, length since then. So that's interesting, that 20-point scale. And the English used that, too. I mean, Chances Robinson, to this day, um, like she gave one of our, we gave our, she gave our Rogers Creek Syrah, you know, 18 points once, which was, she commented, is about as high as I go. That's 18 out of out of 20. Um, so that, that, that 20 point scale was both UC Davis and the, the, the English and they, they used it, which included half points. So it really was a, a, a kind of a 20 point scale because it really ran from 10 to 20 with half points. So 
uh, that was a genuine 20 point scale. Um, what Bob did was to uh, tie that scale or realign that scale to school grades. So A's are in the 90s, B's are in the 80s, C's in the 70s, D's in the 60s, and if you got a 54, you flunked. You know, that's bad. So the 100-point scale, so-called, is really, a, again, a 50-point a scale. Now with the internet, everyone's a critic. But what does that mean for wine? There used to be just a, a few critical voices that mattered, Bob, uh, the spectator. And, you know, now they've multiplied. I mean, the internet has, uh, in many instances, have, has, has removed the barriers to self-expression. There's uh, nobody needs to have an editor anymore. There's a lot of left field out there. Uh, I don't think that the consumer, the reader, necessarily can separate the wheat from the shaft anymore. There's a lot of shaft. Along with this has come, I would say, great inflation. And this is really probably, along with the, you know, it used to matter, you know, you could say, okay, these three points really matter. These three critics or these four, these five really matter. Now there's 28. Great inflation is a, is a real factor, which I think, I think that's the main thing, along with the multiplication of voices, the main thing that has undermined the point system. I mean, now, you know, um, mediocre commercial wines get 91 or 92 points. It just, you know, so that's the, that's the big problem with the point system right now is great inflation. We also talked a little bit about Parker and various wine styles. Bob really had a tremendous influence on, uh, I would say, Bordeaux making riper, richer wines, which was a good thing. And then California wines, uh, not acidifying so much. I think I had a role in that because I had worked in, in, in Pomerol. And, you know, when I was off on my own, away from, from Simi at, at Matanzas Creek, I, I just I didn't acidify the Merlot at all. And that made a tremendous wine, which a lot of people appreciated. And the simple thing was, they don't acidify red wine in Bordeaux. <laughs> and I knew that, but a lot of my colleagues didn't, did not. So those were all like really positive influences of, of Bob. But as, as, as the decades wore on, I, I, I think, and, and I've read him he recently, he admitted as, as much. I mean, he, he really doesn't like acid. And so part of his, his um, I think, falling out with, with Burgundy, aside from the fact, as I understand it, of Favely's dog biting him, was that uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay are, are built around acidity. Um, they, they, it's essential to their character, and that's just not Bob's predilection. You know? And I think I, he admits that. And that in the, in through the 90s and the, the, the aughts in particular, that style could almost have become caricatured. You know, it's a little like you, you start going to the gym and working out, pushing iron, and and then, you know, we've seen the pictures of sort of the muscle-bound um, weightlifters. And, you know, it can, it, can, it can be carried too far. During my research, I came across a podcast episode from Vine Pair called Did Robert Parker Ruin Wine? 
Adam Teeter is the co-founder and CEO of VinePair, and Zach Jabal is a certified SOM and wine writer based in Seattle. They talked about Parker's retirement and what it meant for the business side of wine. I don't mean to say those people were bad wine drinkers. I don't mean to say that Robert Parker did something wrong per se, but the idea that you would just seek out the highest scoring wine you could at whatever price you could afford as the way to buy your wine was a completely novel concept and it completely revolutionary revolutionized the wine industry. It spawned, for one thing, like I said, like 30 other reviewers who all were eager to give out their 93s and everything. And it, it changed the way that wine is marketed, the way that wineries think about promoting their own wines and even making their own wines. And, and so it's it, he, him leaving, even if it's not, you know, an, even if he didn't just, you know, even if he wasn't super active in the last few years, you know, his, the end of his career, I don't think will end the influence of that, in, that system in particular. And they talked a little bit about point scores too. This 100-point scale is a really basic way to review wine. But yet it's also a nuanced way because now I don't, you know, I can't break down. I don't I don't like the whole system of, you know, decanter and stuff like that. It's on a 20-point scale. I don't like the Jancis Robinsons on a 20-point scale. Um, so I'm just going to go 100 because then I can basically say, hmm, I think this is a wine that is good but not amazing so I'm going to give it a 92, but this other one I'm going to give it a 93. Yeah, new, but what they didn't realize, they were actually confusing people even more. Yeah. Because what is the difference between a, nine, a wine that gets a 92 and a wine that gets a 93? Like, I can't no tell, you. tell you. No, no one can tell you. No one can. No one can tell you. And I think, and, and basically also what they started creating, unfortunately, was because they were on a 100-point scale, once you got below a 90, your wine was basically considered garbage. So yeah. they basically made this rush towards the 90, where basically yeah. almost every wine gets a 90 or above. So, yeah. you know, at that point in time, also like, then what's, what's the use? The consumer doesn't know. The consumer thinks that well, over 90 must be good. Becky Wasserman started her company, Becky Wasserman & Co., in 1979. She's an American expat who lived in Burgundy since 1968, and her company exports wines from small domains in Burgundy as well as other regions in France. I became um, an agent for, or the agent for Kermit Lynch for a few years. So that got me all around France to, you know, taste wines from all over, and also to a number of markets in the United States where I began to sort of propose a wine or two. And so ended, I uh, was in Washington at one moment, and that's where I met Robert Parker, and I think it was 1980. She talked about the first time she met Parker. Well, we had a very friendly lunch, and he was, you know, at that point, he, he wasn't well known, of course. He was doing almost a mimeographed uh, um, report on wine for his friends in Washington. And he was an open-faced, smiling man, and that was really just a very, very friendly lunch. And we, I talked about Burgundy, of course. And then um, it seems to the, the uh, advocate seems to have taken off quite quickly. And what he did, he didn't bring up um, the fact that he was going to give wine scores, um, because I'm of another generation where that sort of thing never happened. You know, you wrote, you said, very good or, or, or wonderful or disappointing or what have you, but you didn't give a numerical score. And, but he didn't discuss that at all. And then I believe, if my memory is right, it was the 82 vintage in Bordeaux 
that really put him into the public eye. And that was what, you know, opened the door for him. And I can't say that the idea of scoring-wise uh, <laughs> was a pleasing one to me. We talked a little bit about Burgundy. Some have said Robert Parker didn't care as much for Burgundy or even Lore Valley compared to his love of Bordeaux and the Rhone. Burgundy, for the best of <laughs> the best of people, is of course complicated. Now I think that what spoke to him were wines with a certain hospitable, generous personality. You know, and because he was writing about wines that are reasonably young, he didn't have much time for those with, uh, let's say, a certain amount of structure. That would need several years before they began to be expressive. So I, I, I would say that, that, in a way, you know, he's a big man, and I would sort of say that the personality, his personality, I think he liked it echoed in the wines he tasted, be it, you know, in Bordeaux or the Rhone or in Burgundy. And Burgundy has fewer of, of, of that sort, except in a ripe vintage, which I mean, adored the ripe vintages. In 2013, Parker visited Joseph Phelps in the Napa Valley to taste through every single vintage of Insignia ever made at the time, which included 1974 to 2012. Insignia stands out for a lot of reasons because I think Joseph Phelps was the first to break away from labeling the wines Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Petit Verdot, or whatever. It could be 95% or 98% Cabernet Sauvignon, but he wanted to call it Insignia, and it would be the best lots that they had in the winery uh, each year, and it would be a blend of these Bordeaux varietals. One interesting point he brings up. It can be easy for a critic to nail the perfect vintages, but what about the ones that were just okay? Did they improve over the years? As a wine critic, I know the great vintages in, in Napa. I mean, you know, the 91s, the 92s, the 94s, uh, the 97s. Uh, they're they're going to be spe spectacular today. But what I'm in very interested for me personally is to see how the, you know, the so-so vintages, the vintages that the, 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 the wine writers, the wine critics sort of thought were not terribly interesting, how, how have they performed and, and, and how are they doing now? Uh, and I suspect they're probably doing a lot better than, than we, the experts, had predicted early on. In 1982, the United States was just getting out of a two-year recession. Interest rates were nearly 20% and had hit their peak. They would soon experience a long, slow decline for decades to come, leading to a booming economy in the 1990s. The baby boomers were ready for growth and prosperity, and soon they would be spending more money on wine. That year, the Wine Advocate had over 7,000 subscribers and it was growing fast. At 35 years old, still practicing law full-time, Parker was plotting his plan to move beyond just part-time work on his wine venture. Little did he know, a review of a single vintage would soon set the course of his entire wine career, and his life would be changed forever. That's next time on 100 Points. Did you know that for $1, you can help support independent journalism? Wow, that's a great deal. Just use our email to send us a PayPal donation, 100pointspodcast at gmail.com. Visit our website at 100pointspodcast.com for even more options. Can't donate? 
take a minute to leave a quick review on Apple iTunes, which helps more people find the show. We appreciate you. Thanks for listening.